A common response from participants in cultural awareness sessions was, I thought I, I knew a lot. But coming to this made me realise I don't know a lot about Aboriginal society and culture. Hey, this is Karis Ryan and welcome to Teach Me in 20, the podcast where we learn about something new each week. This week we're chatting with Emeritus Professor Simon Forrest. He's trained as a primary school teacher and worked in schools in Aboriginal communities and is the longest serving Aboriginal academic teaching undergrad and postgrad studies since 1983. It's a sensitive time right now and there's been a lot of information going around and I spoke to Simon and he thought it was a great chance to get more information out there about Aboriginal culture. There's also been a bit of a discussion about what should be taught in schools in terms of Aboriginal culture and I thought it would be great to speak to someone in the industry and who can provide more insight on this. My chat with Simon talks about his experience in teaching in schools, how he taught and incorporated Aboriginal culture in his teaching and we also talk about the impact his on-country course has had on students and how you can benefit from learning more about Aboriginal culture. We also discuss some current social tensions and his thoughts on those as well as how Simon believes we can bridge the gap and connect non-Aboriginal and Aboriginal people together in Australian society. If you enjoy the chat and if you feel there's someone who could really benefit from hearing this, make sure you share it with them. That's what the podcast is designed for, to be able to spread information out there and get people learning with us. Let's get to the chat. Teach me in 20. Teach me in 20. Welcome on, Simon. Hi, Karis. So I wanted to speak to you today about the importance of learning Aboriginal culture. Why do you think it's important that we teach others and we educate people on Aboriginal culture? As a teacher for a number of years, both with primary school students and um, university students, everyone, not just students, but everyone should know about the history of this place uh, where we are. And the history of this place didn't start in 1829, when Stirling, Governor James Stirling, started a colony here on the banks of uh, the Derbal Yerrigan or renamed the Swan River. The history of this place goes back 40,000 years. Um, uh, oldest archaeological site in the Perth metropolitan area is up at Upper Swan. And that sort of evidence, scientific evidence, provides us with proof around our continuity and continu- well, continuity on this landscape. So, and people should know about it. I mean, it's not just 200 years or less than 200 years. Uh, it goes back a lot longer than that. If you had a rope that was 20 metres long and you said, as a timeline, and said um, each metre of that rope is 2,000 years, well, then, then that rope is 40,000 years of our history on this landscape. And then if you took from if one end's 40,000 years and the other end of the rope is 2020, you take five centimetres of that rope from 2020, five centimetres of a 20 metre long rope. I mean, that's how long 200 years is. So there's a very, very, very long history prior to 1829. So if you really want to know about what this landscape and this environment and this place and this people that have been here for a very, very long period of time, it's necessary for people to be taught about that and understand that and to know and to understand that. Is there something in particular, an aspect of Aboriginal culture you would like taught as a compulsory topic in schools or more varied? I think as a learning experience, even from young school-aged children, 
Um, you can start with aspects of Aboriginal society and culture. And they could be as easy as stories and creation stories, because creation stories do a lot. Stories like, why doesn't the emu fly? Or why can't the emu fly? Or within each of those stories, it's about how this particular thing, in this case the emu, came to be here. And so you can start with those easy sort of stories with picture books and things, and those resources already exist. So you can start from there and build a sort of learning process through the years of uh, children in education in primary school and high school, and you build up the complexities of concepts and things like that. One thing I only recently found out that each Aboriginal group has a different language. Mm -hmm. We've spoken previously, it's a different dialect. And I think people would be surprised to know that I was, because, and it's not just about grouping all Aboriginal people together. They mm. are, it's, you know, their own cultures within a culture. It's mm. just, it shows that diversity mm. as well. Well, multiple cultures. And so here in the southwest of um, Western Australia, uh, 14 different language groups. So you've got people here in, in what's now the metropolitan area or the Swan Coastal Plain. And then also stretching out beyond the escarpment is Wadjuk people. And so people originally spoke that language. Because of colonisation, those sort of languages have changed a bit and uh, English has influenced those languages, but it still exists. I had a question from a listener who's a teacher and they were interested to know what you would think a upper primary curriculum could look like and I guess also a high school. What's something they would benefit from learning? Well, having not taught it in primary schools at, uh, for a long time, that thought, sort of thematic approach, I think, can be used certainly from middle primary right through to upper primary and, and, and introducing to people to concepts around Aboriginal study, studies but concentrating on one particular story and then incorporate that right across the subjects. And it's about how creative you can be as a teacher in, in, in how you do that, but you need to have, I guess, the content knowledge about it in the first place. I think in sort of secondary school, you need to start bringing in more about the history and the truth of our shared history and concepts about Aboriginal ways of thinking, doing and knowing, because they can be quite complex and people need to, children and adults, need to be in the right mindset to be able to accept and understand some of those hard truths. I mean, if, you, if you're trying to talk and teach about the stolen generation and even some of the conflict that happened in the early days of colonisation right up through to today in terms of Aboriginal deaths in custody, people, whether they're adults and children, need to be in the right mindset to be able to think about, understand and accept those truths because that's what they are, they're truths and not something in um, looking Aboriginal people, we aren't looking for people to blame, but we are wanting people to understand that these are the truths of our shared history and to be acknowledged, because you can't deal with conflict. It's like a festering sore. If you don't deal with it, it just gets worse. And that's the same around, uh, whether it's Aboriginal deaths in custody around our, or, or other things around our culture. If you don't deal with it, well, we're not going away. Things will just fester and get worse. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's that accepting and wanting to learn more as well. And this is why I wanted to speak to you and get more information out there. So it might spark people to go, oh, I didn't know that. What else mm. don't I know? Mm. Um, and what else can I learn moving forward? Well, well I do, 
cultural awareness sessions and have done for a number of years here at Curtin University and uh, other organisations. And a number of times people respond and they're people that come to these sessions um, wanting to know more about Aboriginal society and culture. And a common response from participants in cultural awareness sessions was, I thought I, I knew a lot, but coming to this made me realise I don't know a lot about Aboriginal society and culture. So people come along and learn more and they realise they don't know as, as much as what they thought they know. Yeah. Speaking of your teachings, you had you taught an on-country unit at mm. Now and Up mm. and that was sort of immersing people who attended in Aboriginal culture sure. for a full week. Mm. How did that unit come about? Now and Up was originally a farm. Well, it wasn't originally a farm. It was originally native vegetation and then uh, cleared uh, for farming. And uh, in more recent years, about 10 years ago, it was bought by an organisation called uh, Gondwana Link with the uh, intention of revegetating that farmland into native bushland. And so if you see the photos from when it was a farm to now, it's, a, it's amazing what's been done. And so there's this regeneration or regrowth of uh, native vegetation and what Gondwana Link what did as part of that saw an important role for na uh, local Noongars to play and so that's been managed by local Noongars led by Elder uh, Noongar Elder Eugene Eads and when I took on this role at Curtin University as Elder in Residence my previous uh, roles in universities had been more of an administrative role like a head of the um, Centre for Aboriginal Studies, the director and so it was more an administrative one around managing people, managing budgets and things like that. So my teaching was virtually nil, didn't have the opportunity to do teaching. So when the elder in residence role came up, I, I wanted to return to teaching. But if it was t uh, uh, teaching around Aboriginal society and culture, my um, focus was away from traditional teaching in a classroom or seminar or lecture theatres or whatever. And uh, I decided to do this teaching uh, make it available for students where we go into the bush and have an immersive experience around Aboriginal society and culture and so that's what On Country is. We go down at now and up at this stage. Uh, there could be others that develop in future and have an immersive, exper immersive experience over five days. So what are, as examples, things, some things that the students are learning that week? Well, a couple of things. We go to a place called uh, Kokanirup Kokanirup is closer to Ravensthorpe. It's about a two-hour drive from now and up. And it's a memorial site where a massacre took place. So there's some history provided and we go there and we think about that and we talk about what happened here and for people to start thinking about the impact of colonisation on Aboriginal people. But in the night before, we sit around the fire and I start to introduce them to the concept of Budya Ne. Budya is land, Ne is to hear or listen. So it's about listening to the land and what listening to the land is central to in Aboriginal society and culture. Because if, you know, our culture, our ways of and our relationship with this place and the way we think, do and know has evolved over 40,000 years of living in this place. So there must be something to it. And I explain that to students about this concept of bujane, listening to the land. It's not just about listening. It's about seeing speaking, touching, tasting, smelling the landscape. 
I was watching a program about um, recently about the relationship between the Daintree rainforest and the Great Barrier Reef, how they're connected. One survives because of the other. And they're talking about the, the unique connected... Well, we've known that for 40,000 years. Everything is connected. And humans aren't separate to it. Humans are part of that connectedness to the environment. We're only just part of it. You know, and as custodians of this land uh, and the environment, we try and ensure that this environment has continuity and continues on to the next generations. So when you start to explain what listening to the land is to students and provide them with the opportunity to do things and to listen to the landscape and see those trees, what are they saying? To see those birds, what are those messages those birds are giving to us? Because we're connected. And I say all human societies at some stage have had this connectedness to the environment. But it's really only these days how First Nations people across the world still maintain this listening to the land or, or relationship with the environment. Where the environment has set the rules and our culture has adapted to suit. Whereas many non-First Nations people is about how you change the environment. We just look around us. The whole natural environment has been changed you know, to suit society. You know, I'm not saying one way is better than the other. I'm saying they're actually very, very different. It's a great point. With the students that are taking part in this one-week unit, what's the feedback? Just to touch on one thing, uh, and I may have mentioned it to you previously when we were talking around, traditionally Aboriginal society and culture has been taught like a subject. Yeah, watch a video, read a book, read, go and do this research, rah, rah, rah. And sure, that, that sort of content-based presentation of Aboriginal society can only get you so far. So On Country is about getting a deeper understanding and a deeper experience around that. So feedback from students is, one, it's great, <laughs> it's great to get away from university for a week. They can get 25 credit points by doing something very, very different. And students do it as an elective. So I get students who come on the on-country visits who might be nurses or training to be nurses, some who might be training to be lawyers or journalists or teachers or whatever. So you have a range of people, you have a range of, of domestic students and overseas students, all coming for a variety of reasons. But they've enrolled it because the, the one thing they want is, is know more about Aboriginal society and culture. And um, because they want to be there, they're more receptive to how we're trying to put this message across of listening to the land of Budjanir. They're more receptive to it because they wanted to go down there in the first place. And feedback overwhelmingly is how people didn't know this stuff. Even if they did things in high school, they watched the rabbit-proof fence and the stolen generation, and that was it. They didn't go into any sort of deeper understanding. And students overwhelmingly talk about how it's, how it's life-changing. I can remember one student wrote, this is the best week of their whole life. Admittedly, they've only been around the place for about 22 or 23 years, but if saying that, it's been the most rewarding experience of their whole life. And they talk about, we'll provide comments like this. I saw a student in the shopping centre the other day. I couldn't, rem you know, I'm mean, in contact with those students for a week, so I didn't recognise the student, but she recognised me, Simon, Simon. Um, 
off to do a teaching practice down at Mount Barker and she said, it, yeah, in my last semester of university in the On Country Week is the best unit I ever did. And that's not just one student, that's consistent. Consistent to the, to the extent where students will say they want to take on board some of our understandings of this landscape in terms of their own way of life and their own way of interacting in this environment. Well, one example was you performed a Welcome to Country at Optus Stadium for mm. the West Coast Eagles. Mm. And now Josh Kennedy, before a match, mm. he'll go on the field and mm. he's barefoot mm. and trying to have that connection to the land. Mm. So it sort of shows that, you know, there is something in it. In You know, you can take away something from it. You can internalise it and it's personal what he does to him. He feels that this is an advantage to him and helps him in his preparation for a game. So it can be very personal. And that's what students do. I mean, students, I had one student who had a, who was of an illness and it was, um, well, you say, had HIV and um, he openly expressed that to the group. I saw him at an art exhibition a couple of weeks after coming back and he said, Simon, I've changed. I said, what? <laughs> he, because he had this... Um, virus, he was um, not in a good place and um, he thought that going to now might help him and it, and it did and I said, oh, well, how do you know you've changed? He said, well, my mother told me. <laughs> oh. He said, uh, you know, I was always sort of uptight and a little bit aggressive and things and I've, he, sa- he said, I've calmed down and when I, when I walk along the river, he gave an example, when he walks along the river, previously if he saw a dolphin swim by and you know, keep walking, not take much notice. But now he stops. He stops and listens to the message that the dolphin is trying to give him. So that's one example. And, you know, these are just a couple of examples I'm, I'm giving, but there's, there's heaps. One, one young man was telling about how he's, um, he wasn't in a good place in terms of his relationship with his father. But he said then that he was taking, taking on board some of the Aboriginal ways of thinking, doing and knowing to help repair his relationship with his father. So people can see benefit in a number of different ways. It's not just about Aboriginal society and culture and teaching content in a unit outline in a lecture theatre is not the same as being on country, being in the place and time where it's not about content, it's actually more about you, the person and the individual. So while I didn't aim for it to be that way, that's how it's turned out. It's interesting because, as you say, it's not just about learning Aboriginal culture and sort of, I guess, closing the gap and being able to have our cultures grow together. It's mm. how Aboriginal culture can help you personally. Mm. Yeah. And as clearly there's so many benefits. Are there any plans for this unit to be available to the public and not just to students? Well, what happened coming up two years ago... And this is unheard of. A statement of commitment by the university was signed with um, Gondwana Link and um, Noongar Elders down there in Greening, Australia, about creating a, a bush campus so that not just students studying Aboriginal society and culture but others in different areas can go down there. But the thing around that, OK, the statement of commitment, so not just the vice-chancellor, the whole of the senior executive... So the 14 people that run this place all went to now and up. <laughs> Unheard of. I was saying to the students, there's no way any unit at any university in Australia 
would have the senior executive come to their classroom. And you've got to hear it now. No? And so the leadership of this place, Curtin University, has recognised and acknowledged this as an important way of students coming to an understanding uh, around Aboriginal society and culture and the benefits that we can bring to this place. And as I said, students do this as an elective. But I've had members of the community come in. So basically, theoretically, any member of the public can come and study. Uh, I've had queries from the public. Can I come and do that? Yeah, sure. You can sign up, a, what do they call it? a non-award student. Yeah. So you do all the content, but you don't do the assessment. Uh, you can get a certificate saying this is the you know, saying this is the content that you've done in this. If you need that in terms of some proof that you've done it. We've spoken previously and you mentioned there was an international student that did your unit. She was told by a family member to stay away from Aboriginal people. Mm. They're alcoholics, they're not safe. That's why she did this unit, to learn more. And she was blown away. Mm. Do you think it's a shame that more international students and even tourists, there's a range of tours that go on that tourists are attending to learn about Aboriginal culture... Mm. whereas our own society is not? Mm. Well, it's made available. I mean, it's, it's whether people want to do it. And like I said, I don't want people being involved unless they're... I mean, like, I've done cultural awareness with, with mine sites. So you go up there and because of the native title agreements with the mining company, the native title um, or traditional owners want... Uh, the miners to be do cultural awareness course. So I've helped a couple of groups out how to do that, how to present that. So you present this content, and I always say to these mine mining groups, say, okay, just what I've done here. There can be a bit of content, but you need to have an on-country component as well. Now, when I say the groups of people around Aboriginal cultural awareness, you can't become culturally aware of another's culture, whether it's Aboriginal, whether it's uh, people from other different cultures. You can't become culturally aware of another's unless you're aware of your own cultural values. And so we do a bit of an exercise that. What are the values? What are the things that are important to you? And so we get through this stage of doing that and then this cultural awareness. And some people say, well, Simon, I've done cultural, cultural awareness at the other mine I was at. Or, you know, when I was a policeman or when I was a nurse, I've done cultural awareness. Okay. My next question is, what have you done with it? You could be culturally aware of hundreds of different cultures, but if you're not going to use that in your interaction with either Aboriginal people or whoever uh, and taking it to the next level, which is being culturally competent, well, then cultural awareness is useless. And we all, all Australians, need to be culturally competent in interacting with people from different cultural backgrounds. And that's what my cultural awareness courses are about, sure. It's introducing content around Aboriginal society and culture. But in doing that, give participants the ability or the information about how to interact with people from different cultural backgrounds. And we, we all need to do that. Australia is such a culturally diverse nation. If we aren't able to interact with fellow Australians from different cultural backgrounds, well, we're stuffed. We all need to be culturally competent. Do you think if people were more culturally aware and particularly with Aboriginal culture, we would have less incidences like we just saw the other week with mine sites, you know, tearing away <laughs> sure. Aboriginal, you know, archaeological sites. Sure, for sure. 
And there's a long way to go and, and, and there's a, a, a large group of people in Australia. How you do that, you know, to a large population to come to some sort of cultural understanding, whether it's about Aboriginal society and culture or whether it's another one. Um, I mean, <laughs> what Rio Tinto did to a 40,000, older than 40,000 year old site uh, is unreprehensible. Uh, they may have had permission or went through the right processes and things like that, but they had a what's called an Elevate Level Reconciliation Action Plan, which put it as a peak organisation in Australia, one of about 20 organisations in Australia that had Elevate Level Reconciliation Action Plans. We're talking about Rio, we're talking about Qantas, we're talking about two universities, Curtin and another one, um, who have Elevate Level Reconciliation Action Plans. It means they'd been through these four-stage process of, of reconciliation plans of working with and uh, their workforce understanding and having a commitment to uh, Aboriginal society and culture. And then they blow up an ancient site. It's unreprehensible. I mean, and so, quite rightly so, Reconciliation Australia deregistered their Reconciliation Action Plan. They definitely weren't doing the talk do all these things, oh, you were an Elevate-level rap organisation, you know, one of those peak organisations, and then they come back and blow up an Aboriginal site. Well, that's just showing what the, the realities are. The cultural heritage means nothing. It's more about the money. It's more about the economic factors. And that, unfortunately, is an overriding factor in, in, in modern-day Western culture, capitalist societies, free market economies, is that the economy wins over everything else. And that's not just in in Aboriginal heritage, it's a wide, crane, wide range of areas, particularly in the environment. The environment loses out because it doesn't have the same economic value. Which is a shame because, as we've just talked about then, Aboriginal culture gives so many intangible benefits and the feelings people are getting from learning and, you know, the, the students you've had that have been able to improve their life mm -hmm. from learning this. So not every benefit has to be monetary. Mm. How can we connect city Aboriginal kids to their culture? If I take my own child uh, as an example, and so it needs to come from their parents and their grandparents and great-grandparents about their family and their knowledge and their landscape, where their country is, and what their practice is, what their language is. And so if that, because of a variety of reasons, things like stolen generation and other things like that, where people have become disconnected um, from their culture, from their country. It can be relearned by getting information from others, other elders around the place, me, Noel Nanup, um, Richard Wally, lots of elders with lots of information who can give that back to people who will give information about culture back to those that it's been taken away from. And so, so parents, and if not parents, other significant others can, can pass on that cultural information the most important thing around Aboriginal society and culture apart from you know, our continuity in this place, apart from ways of thinking, doing and knowing, is family. And a lot of cultures, are, the family is central to it. Well, it's no different from Aboriginal society and culture where family and extended family and relationships with family are one of the most important, well, is the most important social factor in being able to understand who you are and where you're from. Are we losing aspects of Aboriginal culture, whether that's from it's not being taught, whether it, or is it, you know, at the younger generation not as attached to it? 
If you look historically what's happened in this country and um, how the stolen generation of people being removed from their parents was a strategic process to break down Aboriginal society and culture and families uh, with an attempt to destroy our culture. Well, it didn't work. Um, we're still here and many people have suffered, but we're still here and it was our culture or language has never been lost. It's always been taken away, taken away by the colonisers in the dominant culture. It's just never been lost, taken away. But I think about myself growing up as, as, a, as a young person, things that are happening today, I could never have imagined happening in my time as a young, as a young adult or teenager. Just things like Black Lives Matter, you know, things like you're sitting here talking with a senior Aboriginal academic, that was unheard of back, you know, what is that, 30, 40 years ago. So things have changed, uh, uh, very much for the positive, but th things have changed very much for the positive, but there's still a lot to do. Yeah. The Uluru Statement is one example. You know, the Uluru Statement come out of a, a, a gathering of Aboriginal elders from right throughout the country at Uluru in 2017 and come up with this very eloquent statement but it was addressed to all Australians, not to government, not to the Prime Minister, not to the government, Governor-General, it's addressed to all Australians. And if you read it, there's not one aggressive word in there. Part of it's, a, it's about tr truth, treaty and voice. They're the three main elements. But what does government do when they get it? Reject it. Reject it. You know? So something such an eloquent statement about what we believe as the First Nations people of this land should happen to us how we can really have a input in creating a better Australia and what's the first thing it's done by it rejects it and so until the sorts of um, mindsets change at a sort of political and leadership level you know real political leadership would have been shown around the Uluru statement they could have even said yeah this is hard this is going to be hard to do but let's take it on board and try and work our way through it. That would be in a better political and more appropriate political leadership response than just rejecting it and calling it and saying we, we're demanding a third chamber of parliament. So until that mindset changes, um, things are going to be very difficult. And, and, and what happens out of uh, Black Lives Matter? What's the response going to be by the political leaders of our country? What do you say to people who have that fixed mindset, who have these preconceived ideas... What do, you, what do you say to them? <laughs> they should do an on-country course. <laughs> That's what I say to them. And, and be mindful and open and understanding about what we're trying to do. I mean, it's just a classic example of the response you get from the dominant culture about initiatives we're trying to show, or we're trying to do, gets rejected. Luckily, I work in an organisation like a university where such an initiative of on-country, where people here are more open-minded, it's a learning place, a place of knowledge. So there were no barriers put up in doing on-country. And so there's places where I think it can be done, and universities are one of those places. Bureaucracies, <laughs> you know, people talk about thinking outside the square. In a government bureaucracy, you can think outside the square all as, you, all, as much as you want. Doing outside the square is impossible. So where places and organisations, not only universities, but dare I say large corporations can do it. If that's their mindset, you would have thought Rio Tinto was one of those, but obviously it's not. But other organisations, you know, 
can do it, can lead the way yeah. in getting their employee quantities. Another example can lead the way by getting the people in their organisation to come to this understanding. And eventually, some of those people will be elected, <laughs> stand for election, become our political leaders in the future. Yeah. There was a post I was spoke, speaking to a, a colleague here just before I came to Morning Tea, and I showed him a poster of a demonstration outside Parliament House on June 6, 1984. And just happened to be in the photograph, and the poster is called Rally for Justice. About four or 500 people outside Parliament House, West Australian Parliament House. And we were demonstrating about Aboriginal deaths in custody. John Pat, who died in, in uh, the police lockup in Roban in September 1983, and there were subsequently two more deaths in custody from my recollection, another two deaths in custody between when John Pat had passed away and when we had this demonstration. So this is back in 1984. We were demonstrating about deaths in custody. And so now you have people still <laughs> demonstrating about deaths in custody. When is something going to be done? So a Royal Commission outlined what needed to be done, but not all the recommendations got taken up. All the easier, less costly recommendations get taken up. But what made me, when I looked at that photograph back from 1984, there's placards and Aboriginal flags and whatnot. One Aboriginal flag was upside down, indicating distress. And uh, there were lots of non-Aboriginal people. But when I looked at that picture and looked at some of the photographs I saw of people down at the Esplanade, I guess what gives me hope uh, in seeing Black Lives Matter rally at the Esplanade, there were many, many, many young people, which is great. What would you like to be seen done to bridge the gap between non-Aboriginal and Aboriginal people in Australia? There's always sort of a bit of um, contention around the gap. But I mean, what do, what do we mean? I mean, we're making judgments around, okay, these are whitefella statistics. It might be around age expectancy. And these are the, the age expectancy of whitefellas, the age expectancy of blackfellas. So there's a difference there of 10 years, let's say. But what do people do about it? Do you consider what's, what I've been working with with a colleague here and, 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 and the mob who, uh, uni, university super, should Aboriginal people be entitled to superannuation 10 years before whitefellas? Well, why not? That creates a more equitable system because we're not going to be around here uh, 10 years longer than whitefellas, well, even to be equal to whitefellas. So it's about seeing those things for what they are. Sure, there's a gap, but what are you going to do about it? And it's not just about, um, okay, creating more healthy environments so Aboriginal people live 10 years longer. Sure, that's part of it, but what do you do about now? It's about creating an equitable type environment, but people see that as, as favouring Aboriginal people. But the thing is, we're not the same. Everyone's different. Different ages, different genders, different incomes, different jobs, different hair colour. We're all different in some way. So it's around acknowledging those differences and working with and being accepting of those differences. We're not the same. We're all very different. And in some Scandinavian countries, you know, you're fined for misdemeanours based on your income. So that people who are unemployed get fined $50 for something where an equivalent millionaire gets fined 50000 for the same offence. That's equitable. Because the millionaire pays $50 fine, well, so what? It's not going to change that person's behaviour. And so equity is about how you consider difference 
value difference and actually deal with difference. So when you talk about closing the gap, it's not just about closing the gap, there's a difference, okay? How do you deal with that difference? Makes a more equitable Australian society. Uh, you've got to get away from the, the Hansonites of this world who think we're all the same and all need to be treated the same. Well, we're not the same. We're all different. I wanted to ask as well, one a question online was, you just used the word mob before. Is it offensive for a non-Aboriginal person to use Aboriginal terms or to wear Aboriginal, uh, say, clothing, colours? What's your... No, if you want me to give you an Aboriginal T-shirt, are you sure? I'll give you one. (laughs) Merch? (laughs) (laughs) Um, No. I think increasingly, no. You learn more about us, you learn more about our ways and how using our words about our descriptors. So mob is a collective noun of of people. And um, I remember one guy who came on country, one of the first on country visits, and he always thought mob was a... uh, a negative character, characteristics of a group of people who would go around smashing windows and that's a mob mentality, you know, doing negative things. But for us, that's a collective noun for us. And Whitefell has taken it on board, particularly in an Aboriginal context. I don't think there's any issues with that. Previously, 10, 15, 20 years ago there may have been, but I think more people that come to an understanding, because that, that's our understanding about us. You know about us because you're using that word. Speaking of understanding, I've been doing a little bit of a course, a Noongar course, and one thing I learned was the welcome to country we do. I wanted to ask, are there elders to sort of take the torch or are we losing elders? Mm. But one interesting point was traditionally Aboriginal culture, when groups would pass through each other's lands, they would have somewhat of a ceremony and welcoming to ensure safe passage. Mm. So... People often wonder about welcome to country. It's not only just honouring, I guess, the mm. land, the traditional owners, but using an aspect of Aboriginal traditional culture. Are we losing elders to be able to perform those ceremonies for us? Or is there a younger generation to be able to take on that responsibility? Mm. Well, excuse me, talk about welcome to country as a um, protocol. It was even raised when you read letters to the editor and people make comments about things they don't necessarily know about or know the detail of, and was saying, welcome to the country, well, that's no big thing. It was invented by um, Richard Wally and Ernie Dingo in 1976-77, when a, um, uh, I think it was the Indian Ocean Arts Festival and some New Zealand Māori group were performing, and they or Pacific Islander group were performing, and they wanted the local Aboriginal people to give them a welcome. And so people think that's where it started, all right, that might be where the modern-day protocol started. But like you said, it wasn't a ceremony to welcome people to country. What you would do, what would happen, and still happens, is that you seek permission to come into other people's country. And then, yes, like you wouldn't go there across another person's country to come in and shoot kangaroos or do something or other or whatever. You sought permission. I remember as a teenager, whenever we went hunting outside the Perth metropolitan area, and it's not a big... <laughs> couldn't find too many kangaroos here. I mean, Wannery Pine Plantation <laughs> used to find some. But um, the forestry department wasn't too happy with us going firing rifles <laughs> no, in, in the shocking. pine plantation. <laughs> but 
you know, when going down to places like Pinjarra or Harvey or up to Wadaru or over to, to Payne's Find, you know, we'd go and visit people from that country who part of going and hunting kangaroos on their country was getting permission and asking them to take us to the places where to get kangaroos. And so that was a, a cultural protocol. And, you know, I would follow that same, same thing today about if I went hunting up Payne's Fine, I just don't go up there because they're really good kangaroos, nice-eating kangaroos up that way. No, I go and see a local person and say, and, um, I'm, I'm, I'm up here, I'm going to get some kangaroos. And they know the best spots. <laughs> so you'd ask them in that respect, but it's also following a protocol about letting people know that, you know, I'm not from here and I'm here now and, and is it okay to shoot kangaroos on your country? Yeah. To finish that, so it's about welcoming, not welcoming, but getting permission from the local people to come on the country. And what that has morphed to is a welcome to country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, younger people are doing it. My, my daughter's 27 and she's not doing them, but her partner who's a year older, is from another Noongar family, and he, his auntie does lots of welcomes here in, in um, Perth, and he's got permission from her to do some on her behalf. So it's training them up, and no doubt my daughter will come to a stage when she's comfortable to start doing welcomes to country. Well, I'll give her authority to start doing them on my behalf. So you, elders have to give others authority to be Well, elders? younger people, yeah, yep. yeah. Yeah. Is there an age? In well, it wouldn't be an age. It sort of has... Well, our, the eldership... I, when I was in Geraldton, and around... Just before I left in 2010, around 2008, I remember going to one TAFE session and during a NAIDOC week and giving an address, and the local Aboriginal fellow, and I welcome our elder Simon Forrest, and people started to refer me to as an elder. Not because I was 55 or 56 or 60 or whatever, because they acknowledged me as a leader, as an elder in their community, as a person who respectfully knows about our culture and our ways, has worked in education for many years. So it's not necessarily about age. It's about how the communities view you in terms of the value that you bring as an elder person. Right, okay. Mm. Last question for you, Simon. What makes you proud of your culture? Hmm, lots really person never asked me that question before. Lots of things. But I think the thing around knowing and what gives me strength is being here on this landscape. Wajak Noongar Buja. So Wajak Noongar country. And I know, you know, as, as my mother's country, my DNA through my maternal line goes right back to the, the archaeological site there in Upper Swan. And, you know, that gives me immense strength and, and you said uh, immense pride that this is my country and only people of the similar ilk can say that. No one else can say that. I was at an opening of a conference in Toronto, the World Indigenous People's Conference on Education and the mob up there, um, Haudenosaunee, the Native Americans, invited Australian Aborigines up to respond to their welcome and they described us as the first of the first peoples, acknowledging that we have the oldest continuous culture and knowledge system on this planet. And if that's not a reason for non-Aboriginal Australians to come to an understanding about us, I don't know what is. Simon, thank you so much for your time today and teaching us more about Aboriginal culture, what we have to gain from learning more about it. Mm. And uh, I'm sure people have taken a lot from today's chat. Thank you, Karis. It'll only cost you 20 minutes.
Thanks for listening and I hope you learned more about Aboriginal culture, how it can help you and if you're a teacher, you've got some ideas of how you can incorporate in your teaching. If you enjoy the chat and want to keep the conversation going, make sure you join our Facebook group, the Teach Me In 20 podcast Facebook group, where we chat about past eps and you get to ask the questions if there's something I missed. And if you want to keep learning something new each week, make sure you subscribe to the Teach Me In 20 podcast and come along the learning journey with me. See you next week. Teach Me In 20. Teach Me In 20.